Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Happy New Year to you all. Listen, I'm sorry we have not produced a new podcast in a little bit, but we're getting back on schedule. Appreciate your patience, and I wanted to share with you the most recent episode of the Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Healthcare is Hard is hosted by Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. I will uh, play the podcast in its entirety, so uh, he'll give you an update. We'll give you an update on uh, on the guest and if you enjoy it, please go to iTunes, search for Healthcare is Hard, and subscribe. We'd love, you have, love to have you listening to that as well. We'll be back with Steve Krupa in another great tale of innovation here on the Breaking Health Podcast. But for now, please enjoy Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. All right, well, welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We are recording under a new system right now. We're actually I'm face-to-face with Keith Figlioli, which is a, a true scary. pleasure. It's scary, <laughs> scary thought. We, uh, we, we usually do this over the phone, but we're in the same building, so we're doing this in person. And this is a week after J.P. Morgan. We're going to launch our uh, third podcast with Susan DeVore in a moment, and I want to get into that conversation. But let's talk a little bit about uh, J.P. Morgan, very short. Uh, on the social media, there's a lot of... Uh, it's getting too big. It's getting too hard to, to, to handle. I was there for just a day and, and frankly, that was enough. But geez, it's an effective way to meet people. What was your, what was your take about the, the social impact or the social effect of JP Morgan? And then if you have an observation, we can get into that in a minute. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been going for a long time and, and I was joking with some this morning. I think I'm fully detoxed just as of today. And it's, it's, you know, two or three days since I've been back. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it really, uh, there's a lot of social media noise, it feels like this year, because I think it's up to 40,000 attendees. And I think, you know, really, as I tell everybody who always says, hey, should I go? I've never been. You got to make it the priorities for, for what you want to achieve there. And I think because you have so many people there, I know what I like about it is it saves me a lot of flights. And so I think Absolutely. from that standpoint, it's very productive from us. From a cost standpoint, I think it's crazy for everybody, um, even some of the largest players at the event. Uh, but I found it to be a very good event and, you know, it's really burgeoned past sort of where it started with life science. And a lot of people don't understand the, the heritage going all the way back to Hambrick, Hambrick and Quist. But, that's right. You know, now because of this digital health investment activity that's been taking place with the good part almost a decade now, there's just this huge ecosystem that has burgeoned up around all the different sides of healthcare. And, and I appreciate that because, you know, this past event, I happened to meet somebody at one of the biotech side events which I had never know, knew even existed. And I was amazed at that ecosystem. So, you know, my one critique, frankly, is just, you know, I just heard that they re-upped for 17 years in San Francisco. And like a lot of people, I just, I think the venue has outlived itself. And so I just think at some point in time, they really got to think about a different kind of venue. Um, but there's so much money tied up in it, I, I doubt it'll happen. They re-upped for 17 years. That's what I heard. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, uh, it's it's like fish in a barrel coming to meet people. You can just stand at the corner and you can you yep. can you can reconnect with folks. It's great. But uh, let's uh, look more at uh, just observations. Any takeaways that are going to help uh, steer you in 2019? No, we spent a lot of time um, in the event actually, and a little bit out of the event. And you know, the three continual recurring themes, which we heard a lot of in 18, but 19, I think. 
you know, the social determinants of health is just can continue to be a, just a heart pounding theme. And I think there's a lot of momentum there on the innovation front. There's a lot of momentum there on the established players. Um, I think the whole virtual care push and getting that to a utilization was also talked about a ton, you know, ver- you know, telemedicine has been going on for the last couple of years, but I think, you know, this is a, this is a year of utilization where we're really going to start seeing people drive that more. Uh, and then consumerism, you know, I think everybody's on board now about what that means. It's not just a, a CVS thing or a Walmart thing or, or et cetera. I think all the existing sort of established players are starting to think through how do they disrupt themselves in that area too. So those are those are the three core themes that I, I continually heard again and again and again. And it's stuff that, you know, as investors, at early stage investors, we've been thinking about for a long period of time, but it just, it was nice to get reinforced across the entire ecosystem. Terrific. Well, now let's get into the business in hand, which is the Healthcare is Hard podcast. Tell us a little bit about your talk with uh, your guest, Susan DeVore. Sure. So uh, I had the pleasure of um, interviewing uh, right before the holidays, uh, Susan DeVore, uh, who is the president and CEO of Premier. Um, it's always fun, I find, to interview and talk with your former boss. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And, and, and Susan's also somebody that, um, you know, is by far uh, one of the most respected in, uh, individuals in the industry, has had an incredible career, has had an incredible impact on my career, frankly. Um, and we just had a really, really good discussion all about trying to peel back the onion that is Premier a little bit, frankly. Um, I find uh, because I'm out of there now, I get asked a lot of questions about what it really is. And so I try to get into that a little bit. And then we talked about what's at the core of Premier is really sort of convening folks and convening their their health systems. Um, you know, as people dive into Premier, they just realize how big that is. You know, 70% of the healthcare environment has some attachment in the U.S. to Premier. And that is Amazing. incredible. Yeah. You know, people, part of their supply chain efforts, part of their collaboratives, part of their informatics, the businesses that I used to run, it is um, an amazing uh, organization with an amazing set of leaders. Uh, and, you know, finally we dug into sort of them as a convener and them as working with CMS and other parts of the government to really think about what's next. Uh, they were very early in, you know, ran the first demonstration program with evidence-based care. They were very early with the ACOs. Most people didn't even know what an ACO was, and Premier was building a 70-market ACO collaborative. Um, and so I think we shed a lot of light on sort of value-based care and where that's going and the pace and how administration gets involved on in that. So I think people are going to really like this interview. I love the interview. I thought it was just a, a really dynamic uh, discussion. Uh, and I really look forward to people uh, you know, digging in and, and taking a listen. And after they liked it, if they want more, I don't need to steer any traffic to the way of hymns, but I understand Susan's going to be uh, holding a pretty pretty central spot in, the, in that meeting. She is. I believe she's the main keynote this year, so it's pretty exciting. We got a little bit of uh, a little bit of foreshadowing That's and insight right. before maybe on some of her comments, so hopefully people can listen to that before they potentially see her at hymns. Fantastic. Well, thanks for this interview, and uh, let's get into this conversation with Susan DeVore. Great. Thanks, Tom. Well, welcome to our third instance of Healthcare is Hard podcast. I could not be more excited to be sitting across from Susan DeVore, uh, former boss of mine. So that's always fun. So I get to know the ins and outs of that, and we get to ask her a bunch of different questions. So Susan, welcome. Thank you. Part of the fun of these is just trying to get people to get to know you a little bit more. And you know, you're on, I, I see every other uh, day on some high-profile media outlet. So it'd be great to just start with an overview on yourself and, and maybe even talk a little bit about how you got into healthcare? 
So I grew up a military brat, one of seven kids, and moved around um, the world. And then my dad um, retired from the military, started a second career in Charlotte, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, my dad was a biomedical engineer uh, in the military, so I sort of grew up in healthcare. Um, and I went to business school, and then right out of business school, went to work for Ernst and Young in their healthcare practice. And uh, I knew I wanted to be in healthcare from the time I was about 14 years old. I didn't even know exactly what part of healthcare. And so I worked at Ernst and Young for elapsed 25 years and then ended up at Premier back in 2003. I'm going to tease a few things out just because I know some things. So your, your history with Premier goes way back and it'd be, I think it'd be interesting for people to know a little bit about that because not many people know that. Yeah, that's true. Not a lot of people know that. Um, my dad actually was one of the um, initial uh, employees of a company called Sun Health which was a predecessor company to Premier. So when I, when I left consulting and uh, I got a call from Premier on the West Coast uh, to interview, uh, nobody knew that my dad had actually helped start one of the predecessor companies because I had a different last name. And so uh, I interviewed, um, and it felt sort of like serendipity to me that all those years later um, I would follow in the footsteps, if you will, of a company that my dad started. Yeah. So I always thought that was like one of the coolest stories ever. And the fact that, you know, people used to tell me that they would remember you as a child kind of running around right. the offices. Right. Like, how cool is that? Well, Sun Health used to have company picnics. And so when I first came to work uh, at Premier, there were some 20, 30-year employees who actually worked with my dad and did remember me as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old running around at the company picnic. So... So it's, you know, it's really kind of fun to have a legacy relationship. And in the last 10 years of my dad's life, we got to talk about work. We got to talk shop every weekend. And, and the, the good and bad of that is um, a lot of the conversation was still the same, right. you know, about the challenges in healthcare, the solutions being provided. And, and it really gives you a view into actually how long it takes to drive change or transformation in an industry as complex as this one. Right. And so you're like um, the ideal guest for what we're trying to do because you've seen this all the way from childhood and you've seen what's going on and, you know, a lot of people kind of kind of come in and out of healthcare, but you've been this through your entire career. And, you know, when you step back and you think about Premier's position in that, you know, probably the number one question that I get since I left Premier is what is Premier? And so we used to always joke about that as well. And so I think it would be really good to give just maybe a quick overview on, on how you describe Premier, um, you know, the sum and its parts, and then we'll dive kind of into this idea of, you know, so your view of healthcare right now. So what I would say is as we look at the healthcare industry, all of us, we see 5,000 hospitals, hundreds of thousands of physicians, all kinds of alternate sites of care, all kinds of technologies, all kinds of insurance companies and offerings. And the truth is, on the provider side of the business, they're all doing the same things, building the same things, solving the same problems. And so the, the idea behind Premier is how do you aggregate hospitals, health systems, doctors, who are all trying to solve a cost problem and a quality problem and get to a different model of care delivery in the country, and how do you do it at scale? How do you bring innovation to it? How do you bring data to it? So... 
So, you know, sort of in one sentence, we would say we are a national performance improvement company. We work from the center of healthcare systems out, not the outside in. And so we want to be the intel inside these healthcare systems with data technology services, a group purchasing organization, to really have them do this more efficiently together than they could all do it themselves. So that's the, that's the theory. Interesting. And so when you, you know, one of the things that I was very naive going into Premier was all things supply chain. And what I learned over those almost eight years was incredible, <laughs> all the stuff that you <laughs> we did. But when you think of sort of panning that out and you think of total cost, I think one, one, one thing that people I don't think truly understand about Premier is how much you impact total cost with your members. And so when you think about what's happening in the cost, and we just saw some data that came out where costs are coming down a little bit, but we're still on the path to 20% GDP from all intents of cases. So how do you think about where the industry is in sort of our runaway costs right now? And more importantly, what does each partner need? What does each player in the space need to do about it? Yeah. It's a great question. It's a complicated question. So for as long as I've been in healthcare, labor costs has been 50% of their operating expenses. Supply chain costs has been 20% of their operating expenses. Supply chain is a clinical process. And so the question of how do you get to appropriate staffing levels, clinically appropriate use of supply chain, um, how do you actually aggregate the buying power of all these health systems to get the best possible price point? So I think the solution to this, and the reason I was so excited to actually come to Premier, because I'd been in consulting for a long time. I'd seen pure GPOs. I had seen technology companies and what they do. The thing that Premier brought was this national footprint, all kinds of data sets. Now it's 45% of the patients in the country, all kinds of applications in the big cost buckets, and a really warm channel, a channel that actually owned the company and a channel that actually wanted to work together at scale to solve the same problems. And so for me, there's still 30% waste in the system. There's still three times variation in care delivery. It can't be fixed by insurance companies or government. It actually has to be fixed from the inside out. And you have to have data and you have to have technology and you have to have wraparound capability to help these healthcare systems um, drive the transformation. And do you think that's changing in, so we used to talk a lot about, I mean, at the core, I think what you're saying is sort of a social system right. in terms of, and do you think that given where margins are, given where consolidation is going, at least at the health system level, do you think that social system and that change, and we'll get a little bit into the BBC value-based care next, is I think that's starting to change at the administrative level for a lot of these systems. A lot of people weren't running on I think it is changing, but I think it, it is changing right now in an experimental way. Right. I think the only way that it changes at scale is if you get health systems off the, the fee-for-service drip. So unless you have global payment models, double-sided risk payment models, models in which people are bonused or penalized based on their ability to drive efficiency and outcomes and quality and safety and patient experience, um, it's too easy to just stay in the fee-for-service world. So I would say today, 10 or 15%, it's sort of a normal distribution curve. You've got the, the innovators, you've got the early adopters, you've got the people who proactively know that we cannot end up at 20% of GDP. We can't be twice the rate of growth of the economy. 
and that that risk is going to be shifted to providers. So the people that see that coming are building the infrastructure for that, driving the experimental implementation of it right now so that they're ready when it's broader. I think the Trump administration and Alex Azar um, specifically have a a much more aggressive urgency around driving to those models. I don't know if you saw, I'll switch over a little bit to value, I'll come back to cost too, but I think this morning the new MSSP rules came out. Right Right before the holidays, so that we all all get to spend all of our holidays evaluating the new ACO rules. 500,000 pages of reading by the fire. Right. But it sounded like the the share take was going from 25 to 40% or something in that tune. So it started, and then then downside risk, I think, starts in 2020. Right. In that range. Right. And and so they really shortened the transition and said the training wheels have come off. We've been experimenting with this now for several years. We want to move to double-sided risk. We want to move to higher degrees of, of, of savings. And we want to do it quickly. Um, and maybe even make it mandatory down the road. I mean, those are the kinds of words that the secretary of HHS uses now. And so when you think about, um, as we move into value-based care sort of discussion points, you think about that pace to your point about Trump and Azar, you know, Trump and price was very different. Right. Obama was very different. Right. You know, do do you feel, because you've been in this for a long time, you know, the administration, Yes, they can't change it, but they can also they can influence pace. Right, it feels like. So, are you, are you? It sounds like you're feeling like the pace is picking back up again, where we kind of fell down a little bit in the beginning part of the Trump administration. Yeah, I think there was a lot of noise and uncertainty around repeal and replace. There's a little noise right now around the Texas case, but you got 17 million people who've gotten access to health care. Hard to put that back in the barn, and I actually think the power in the innovation center that the current administration has to drive their drug pricing agenda, their value-based care agenda, their opioid agenda, and their interoperability agenda, which would they would say are their top four priorities, they have the regulatory power under the current law to move that forward as fast as they want. Got it. And that's what I think, um, and in a way, they can politically talk about the ACA and, you know, it's not the best thing since sliced bread, but operationally, they have the vehicle to drive the changes they want. And we keep saying it's kind of, I think, the same place, but, you know, value-based care is inevitable, but it's gradual. Right. You know, I and Obamacare had a much more gradual view of right. getting to the end point. I think the current HHS secretary and the administration has a much accelerated view of that. They basically came out and said, I want 50% of all payments by 2020 and 100% by 2025 yeah. in alternative payment models. So, you'll, so it, it feels like, because we get this question a lot, not only from our health system and payer partners, but obviously the entrepreneurs, that... The pace of EBC is probably going to start picking up again. I think it's the pace is going to pick up. It's been fits and starts up to now because of repeal and replace, because they didn't have all the positions filled, because they changed HHS secretaries. But there there are more regulatory rules, proposed rules, final rules coming out at a much faster pace right now. And I think the risk for health systems is that if they wait too long to build the infrastructure to actually deal with this, they're going to be accepting the risk before they're completely ready to accept the risk. So that, to that point, I read something last week, which I thought was really interesting, and I hadn't heard someone describe it this way, and 
I, I'm probably going to get the percentages wrong, but I'm, I'm curious back to your core members if this is relevant. Um, and this is someone who's steeped in um, healthcare consulting for providers. Is up to twenty percent of risk contracts you're experimenting? Right. Twenty to fifty percent you need to start making subtle structural changes. After fifty percent, you truly are a risk bearing entity. And you need to make major structural changes. Are you mm-hmm. seeing that across kind of your membership in terms of? And then what are the factors on that? Is it market? Is it competition? Yeah. Um, it varies by geographic market, as you know, in terms of how intense the pressure is to make that movement. But for the innovators and for the early adopters, I would say that they view that 20% and that experiment as the time to build the real infrastructure. So I'm not sure I would say they're structurally or waiting until they get to above 50% because I think there's a lot of red ink between the 20% and the 50% if they if they don't have the infrastructure. Um, I think the the only thing getting in the way of it right now is the uncertainty. So if you're in fee-for-service and if you're experimenting with alternative payment models, but you think there's a chance that fee-for-service might last longer and you have to give up some of that revenue or profitability in the short term to get to the long term or make investments, it's just harder. It's just harder to, to pull the trigger. And then views on downside risk across the membership and your view. Um, you know, I know, I wouldn't say it's frowned upon, but you know, people haven't been jumping up and down to go, hey, yeah, I'll get into a downside risk contract. Yeah, I think that, again, it, it's tied to, am I ready to do it or not? And I think Obamacare gave a longer transition window than the current administration wants to, to give because they have to get to the savings faster. And so, you know, what we talk to all of our health systems about is, look, whether it's ACOs or bundled payment or Republican or Democrat, total cost of care, coordination of care, interoperability, quality problems, safety problems, dissatisfied patients, it's all the same core problems. So build the infrastructure to solve those problems. And then if you, if you start... Um Thinking about Premier's position over the years, which again, I just highlight this because I don't think a lot of people know it, is, you know, you were a convener in a demonstration program with evidence-based care early on with CMS. Right. You are a convener with bundles. You have one of the largest, if not the largest, MSSP sort of collaborative convening. Right. Do you think you'll end up seeing Premier convene a couple of new programs coming out of CMMI? So, like, just give an example. Uh, Social determinants. Right. So, we're hearing a lot about, you know, Azar talk about is there a new supplemental benefit program that comes right. out, may start with MA, may not. Right. You know, would you guys jump into something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, our history has been to try to stay two or three years ahead of where we think it's going, to try to work proactively in DC with our data, with our members, with our collaboratives to design and test what works and what doesn't work so we can inform these things. So we're participating in the oncology care model. And to your point, the bundles, the ACOs the value-based purchasing. I think one of our core competencies is actually the ability to truly understand all the algorithms behind all the measurement and the technology that's needed. The second competency is to actually organize health systems at scale to be able to then hone in on the root causes and the things that really work. The challenge in the industry right now, I think, is that there's a ton of big data, a ton of it. 
And, and we have to, as you know, because you used to do this inside Premier, figure out how to get it to small data in the workflow with the physician and the patient to change the decisions as the care is being delivered. And so I think that's the next big horizon uh, in healthcare. Yeah, it's like a misunder. I mean, it's not not even widely known, but but Premier's uncanny ability to convene many different players when a new shock to the system comes out, I think is second to none. And I'm not saying that just because I'm an alumnus or whatever, but but it's real. And I think you guys have such a unique position to do that also because to your point on the DC side, I'd love to see you guys lean in more into what I think are going to be some really interesting programs coming out of CMMI soon around social determinants and a few other areas. Yeah. So, so I think we will continue to do that. Um, I think we can do it at the federal level. I think we can do it at state level. But what's interesting and new, probably since you've been there, is employers who are increasingly frustrated with a, an insurance company's ability to um, change the cost curve. Right or deliver the clinical outcomes and reduce the variation. And so I think that, I don't think they want to upend their insurance relationships, their risk relationships, their TPA relationships. I think what they want to do is be able to convene, to your point, one of our core competencies, providers with data and technology that can be standardized and normalized, and then have those providers go to work on improving the care delivery. And then I think they want to incent their employees to use the individual providers within a narrow network that actually are high-quality, low-cost providers. And I think that dynamic is really different. And I think, you know, historically, maybe 3% of employers were going direct. I think the frustration level is much, much higher than that now. And I think that, so, so for us, not only is it for federal government and state government, but also directly for employers. And I think that national convening network ability with data is really important. And do you see yourself in that environment being able to convene your health system members with employers and kind of think through sort of the right strategies? Right. So you know from having worked with us that we do these accelerated uh, solution design events. Um, We have done those where we'll bring 40 or 50 health system member customers, and we'll bring together a national employer and we'll say, let's design kind of the ideal employer to provider performance improvement collaborative, if you will. Interesting. And so, you know, once you build that prototype, you can then sort of do that with a lot of national employers that are customized to the needs of their employees. Right. So move it away from just, say, some of the national model programs. Right. Right. a little bit more. Right. The bundled programs, you know, ideally what all health systems want is to treat patients consistently. So they don't want to treat an ACO patient differently than a bundled payment patient differently than an employer, you know, self-funded employer's uh, employee. And so the, the beauty of what we have is the ability to take all of that clinical information and financial information and from the inside of the delivery system, figure out how the care really should be delivered. That's really, really interesting. interesting. And so, so I'm going to come, come back, back to the company side, side because at the end of this, I want to talk a little bit about the insurance and get your point of view. Right. Um, but I but do, do want to flip into, into this sort of cost thing again and DVC and kind of combine it in a lot of stuff that we used to talk about, which to me, it seems to be really coming as a wave now is sort of value-based contracting. So essentially, you know, you guys may have Seventy plus billion spend on whatever it is. You know, how, how much are you seeing in the market now 
on one side of the value based contract, and our suppliers pushing it, or your members pushing it. Right. And then on the flip side of that comment, I love to understand your point of view. What's missing there from an iteration standpoint? What needs to be in place to pull this off at scale rather than kind of one off stuff? Yes, it's a great question. The first thing I'd say is a whole bunch of suppliers give a lot of lip service to it. Right. right. We all yeah. we all want value-based contracts and we're all going to go out publicly say we want value-based yeah. contracts. Um, we have seven. We have a pipeline of 20 or 25. So I have more today than I had three years ago or five years ago. Um, and I do think that the pressure pharma companies are under, the pressure health systems are under, uh, will lead people. And, and especially if you move to these global payment models, I think actually global payment models uh, will drive a lot of the right incentive for value-based right. contracts. Um, the difficulty with them is isolating the variables and how much differentiation is there really in products and the clinical effectiveness. So the need to have clinical data, real world, real time clinical data, it's why Stanson's really important because that puts it in the workflow and you can actually see how many physicians accept or ignore you know, the idea. And you can also see with the clinical data, when we marry it with the clinical content, how much effect something is having or not having. Our acquisition of CE City, which you know well, gives us access to registry data. So when we were trying to do value-based contracts before, all we had was acute outpatient data. If you've got registry data together with the healthcare system data and the EHR data, you actually have a way of managing the variables you're trying to isolate. But it's complicated, yeah. right? It's really complicated. Well, there's, there's many, many mechanisms, mechanisms in that, right? Right. Is the data good? Yeah, you have the data. Right. You know, then you have payment mechanisms. Who gets paid? How do they pay? Right. So, it's, so I think it will be a slow-moving right. um, machine, not a fast-moving machine. I also think that when you have clinical decision support that's automated inside and connected to the EHR, we'll be able to more rapidly identify um, clinical trials right. in an automated way. Um, if you could take that same technology and have it automate prior authorization tied to clinical protocols that an insurance company would have, you can get efficiency and speed that clinical adoption. So I think there are a lot of ways to get to it. I think value-based contracting, uh, we're, we're completely focused on it, but it is a hard, long slog. And so when you think about what side of the market that will penetrate most, when we have biologics now sometimes getting up to a million dollars a year for a course of treatment, I think, do you think it's going to be at the high end of the market? I think it's biologics. I think it's biosimilars is a perfect place for it. Biosimilars is a perfect place for it. it. Um, Devices is a good place for it. Um, Those are the hardest ones to do, though. So so I think think it actually has applicability across uh, the whole portfolio, pharma certainly, device. Uh, I just think um, the real contracts are very hard to do and hard to do because it's hard to isolate the variables that really make a difference. We ran across a company uh, a couple months ago that is doing work over in Europe with a lot of the um, governments where they've basically taken a bond trading platform yeah. and try to create a marketplace for what the market will tolerate for a price point. Mm. And doing it from the government down now, as we know, it's a lot easier probably over there than doing it mm. here. Mm-hmm. But a really fascinating idea that this, this problem. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so maybe an adjunct on this is when you think about pharma prices and you think about what's going on in the government, because we haven't touched on that much. You know, right. I know you think about this a lot. What's your view on what's really going to happen there? It feels yeah. like a lot of lip service to me in some yeah. programs, but do you think something's really going to come down the pipe that starts changing some of this? I do think it is the number one priority for the Trump administration for health care. So I would say that first, which makes it important. Um, two, I think that, um, they have a lot of power in the innovation center. They have the power to make things mandatory, et cetera. And you have a leader of the HHS that is a former pharma manufacturer. So I think it, the setup is, um, more conducive to, to things changing. I think that what they believe, what we believe is that unless you can create competitive friction, it's really hard to control those prices. Scott Gottlieb, the new FDA, um, commissioner, He's driven a 47% increase in the new generics to market, uh, speeding up that process, trying to take away the loopholes that actually allow pharma companies to extend patent lives, to not let generics get to market, to not through rebates let biosimilars get to market. I actually think they're going to be very focused on closing as many of those loopholes as they can. I also think they're going to push this transparency of pricing um, and this international index demonstration project is a really interesting, clever. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how easily it will be implemented or how much teeth it has in it. But the idea that you would take all the pricing around the world for the same drugs, create an index, and then as the government say, that's what we're paying. Um, it's a, it's an interesting way to try to solve the problem. So I would say I view their activities as creative, hard, um, but, but there's a lot of prioritization behind it. Right. I just remember when, when you used to look at me and say, Keith, we've got to figure out this rebate thing, transparency. And, and as a, as a, you know, a product guy, a tactician and a data guy, I'd be like, I didn't even know what to do with it because my head would hurt because there was so much lack of transparency in the whole process. Trying to dig into that, we had so much data, and you're like, "Wow, how are we going to unpack this?" So it's going to be interesting to watch. Maybe, maybe to close out um, the last couple of minutes to talk a little bit about the you know the new entrants. I think you know we get a lot because we're in the uh, the venture space, the innovation space. You know, we hear a lot of noise, and we talk to a lot of folks, and we talk to a lot of them. You know, when you think about the Amazon, you think about um, you know. Even, you know, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Aetna, all the players that are coming right. in, you know, Microsoft is being a little silent, but they're doing a lot of stuff. Right. Um, I'm just curious how you're thinking about that. And more importantly, what the discussion is with the health systems. And, right. And then I'd also put in there kind of the new entrance on the primary and the other side, like One Medical and a few of the other right. new players that are coming out. Right. So, you know, it feels like uh, Christmas every week. There's a new deal, a new offering, a new partnership, um, a new idea. So there's no shortage of point solutions to solve a particular problem. And the challenge all the health systems have is how do I organize all this stuff in such a way that I take all this stuff and figure out how I'm actually going to coordinate the care for an individual more effectively. Um, And so I think that there are a lot of players that have some really cool products. And I think that what Premier is trying to do is say, you need an integration infrastructure. And if you're a provider um, and you have communities or patients that are going to be with you for life or for a long time, 
let's figure out how to take those devices, let's figure out how to take those data sets, let's figure out how to take those multiple technologies, and let's figure out how we filter, help you filter through all that to figure out what are the 10 most important things you need to be working on to improve the outcomes of your healthcare system. Right. Um, and so, you know, when I look at um, big players who have long-term potential to make it more seamless and end-to-end and bring a lot of disparate technologies together, um, I think that ultimately that's where we're going to end up. But I think there's going to be a lot of messiness with people trialing and erroring on lots of individual point solutions along the way. Yeah, it's funny just because, you know, we were at such a base level when I call population health one data. Right. Which everybody thought they were going to build these enterprise class care coordination, data warehouses, all this stuff. And it it feels like our our point of view is, you know, population health 2.0 is more like you're taking slices of the population. Right. But then Figuring creating, out how to manage them. And you're creating companies. Right. And so what's happening to the health systems and the payers is if they've got their diabetics, they've got their right. heart failure, you know, CHF patients, they've got their oncology patients, they're having to manage a portfolio of suppliers right. to right. do that. Right. And then, you know, the question obviously is that a super bundle and a chronic complex, like how does that work? Right. And right. you see, you know, some of the companies now bridging over that when right. they started with diabetes and now they're kind of move on. Right. So it's just going to be interesting to see how this all plays out in my mind because it feels like we're going right back to where we were with a lot of silo data and silo approaches based on population. Maybe that's the right way. I don't know yet, but right. Well, I think it's going to be, I think it's, um, it's this dichotomy of needing to have the individual who has diabetes have the best of everything that individual can get. And then as a health system to actually understand how to systematically take care of a population right? Where diabetes is connected to obesity, is connected to other chronic um, conditions. And so it's the big data over here that then needs to be able to be turned into micro data for for an individual and the care of an individual. And I just think this is a long journey. But when I think back to your point, I've been around a long time. When I think back to the days that we didn't have electronic health records to even capture it, and we probably wouldn't have ever gotten to electronic health records unless mandated by the government and unless paid for in some ways or subsidized by the government. And when I think about not having cloud-based technology capability, the level of AI we have today, you know, I just think there are a lot of different capabilities. We're just figuring, we're just trying to figure out how to take all of that capability and make it usable. So, so that is a great, sort of at the end of this is, where does this end up in 10 years? I mean, again, like your point, you've been here for a long time. You've seen a lot of different waves that's gone on. You've yeah. seen the permutations of all this. Yeah. Uh, what does this look like in 10 years? You know, it, you know, <laughs> I think there, uh, there are some things I think about how I would like it to look, and there are some things I worry about. So what, I, what keeps me awake at night is thinking that with the growth of Medicare and Medicaid, with people who have... Um, um, defined contribution pension, not, not defined benefit. We're going to have more old, fat, unhealthy, and poor people. And so our ability to actually finance this uh, longer term is even more challenging than it is today. So to me, if we can get to a healthcare system, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurers, employers, HSAs, 
where we understand the clinical protocols by condition and we invest in prevention and we do it in the home and we do it in ambulatory settings. I mean, we have to get to a healthcare system across payers. I think the, the world of us having to do things a different way for every patient population or payment bundle we have is just not manageable. Yeah, it's a great point. So I do think there will be more consumer activation in it. There will be more technology. There will be more data. Um, there will be more integrated delivery systems and integrated capabilities. There will be fewer and bigger, you know, national players. Um, but I think it's going to take a long time, and I think it's going to be messy along the way. Well, Susan, this has been great. We could probably talk for hours because yep. I know too much about yep. it. Yep. Uh, but I appreciate it. I think listeners appreciate it. And um, we're wishing you and your family happy holidays. You too. And I'm sure we'll see you at J.P. Morgan. Yep. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Thanks for listening to this episode. And of course, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do go and subscribe. It's on iTunes. Go to Healthcare is Hard. And uh, we'd love to have you listening to both Breaking Health and Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Keith has a, a really great contact list. He's got uh, a lot of interviews already lined up. In fact, I helped him with another one yesterday. So you'll be uh, getting those podcasts once a month. It's a great use of your half hour. So go to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders on iTunes. Subscribe and we'd love to have you listening. Thanks so much. And again, we'll be back with another episode of the Breaking Health Podcast with Steve Krupa in two weeks.